Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Into every relationship, every marriage, every set of siblings, every community, every church, come moments when you have to have difficult conversations. That's the reality of what it means to be in relationship, that you can discuss the undiscussable. So we're going to have what is a difficult conversation throughout this series. It's difficult because it addresses the very true and evident reality of our day and of our time. The question is, What does a Christian disciple, somebody who is following the footsteps of Jesus, what does that person do? How does that person live? What kinds of choices does that person make in a polarized culture? It is no secret to say we are as polarized, certainly as we've ever been in my lifetime, or at least my adult lifetime, deeply polarized. So the question becomes, how do we respond to such as disciples of Jesus. So maybe one of the first questions to answer, first issues to address is, well, just in what ways are we polarized? Well, that could take our whole time, but let me just give a few that seem to be particularly pressing on us. Uh, To begin, politics. Politics has deeply polarized us. We know that we have at the workplace, we have in the home community, we have in this church sitting next to people who hold politics that not only differ from ours, but for which we have nothing but disdain. That's the reality of our time. And it comes out in so many different ways. Our politics has divided us. And friends, we're in 2024. What does that mean? It means that as 2024 rolls forward, we will increasingly move into the space of the upcoming presidential election, which will only more deeply polarize us. Politics. Out of that grows something, many different themes, but one of the examples is immigration. One side says, build the wall. The other side said, open the border and let the fighting begin. And begin it does in harsh and angry and vindictive ways, polarized. Or even in a church like this one that has many medical professionals in it, masks. Masks. I'm not talking about Halloween. Masks. So we've had those who have said, we're not coming back to church because you're not taking this seriously enough. And we have others who say, you have caved into the government. We're not coming back. And in the middle, I'm saying, help me, Jesus. (laughs) 
polarized. Or what about race? Race polarizes us in many different ways. It drives deep wedges between us. Much anger, much fear, much vindictiveness in what is supposed to be the conversation or the public space. And what about these letters? LGBTQ+. How do we wade into that space, that terrain? What does that mean in a church setting specifically? And so as followers of Jesus, we know that we can click on any different website, Christian website, Adventist website, and find very different ideas, very different interpretations, and very different responses. So it's polarized yet again. What about theology? Theology, you know, that is progressive. Theology, you know, that is conservative. Don't typically do that well together. They are fighting, pushing, pulling, angry at each other in theological circles. What even about belief? Belief is another space. And so we have the presence, as of 20 years ago, more or less, of what have been called the new atheists, the four horsemen of the new atheism, who have been angry and vindictive and forceful. And some in the Christian community have responded in the same way on the side of belief. One more place of polarization. And in the midst of it all, and this is just a quick and brief list, there are others, as you know, we gather together in this place called Loma Linda University Church where we say we have taken the purpose of growing disciples as our key focus. We want to grow as disciples. We want to invite others to join us who wish to grow as disciples. And so the question becomes, how does the disciple of Jesus respond, live in a polarized age? Now, we could go to Scripture to find out what have the people of God done in both Old Testament and New in responding to cultural realities of their day that were very damaging to the belief system? How did they respond? And even in Scripture, you will find a range of responses. I've given them some names. I don't even know if they're the best names, but let me talk about some of the responses that we find in Scripture. One of them I might call the fortress response. The fortress response, let's build the walls around us. Let's isolate ourselves from the world, insulate ourselves from the world. Let's keep the insiders inside and the outsiders outside. Lot, some say, should have taken that approach rather than what he did in Sodom. That's one response. A second response I might call the chaplain. The chaplain response is the response that takes culture based on its own realities. I'm not here to critique it, not here necessarily to support it. I just accept it for what it is, and I go about my business the best I can in the midst of it. See the name Obadiah in 1 Kings. Obadiah, who was the leader in the court of Ahab, maybe the most wicked king Israel ever had. In the time of Elijah, a very challenging time in Israel's history. Obadiah, working in that setting, quietly does things for prophets and for God, but doesn't critique the system, just accepts this is where we are. You'll find that response. You will also, <coughs> pardon me, find the response of judge. 
And if you want to see those, all you have to do is to look at some of the Old Testament prophets who speak clearly and forcefully and powerfully and painfully into the culture of Israel and the cultures well beyond Israel. Or what even about conscience? What about John the Baptist in the New Testament who was the conscience that stood up and said, this is wrong. Herod, you can't do that. You can't have her. That's your brother's wife and pays for it with his head. Conscience. Or what about evangelists? Sometimes that's the way to interact with the cultural realities. Certainly that was true of Peter, day of Pentecost preaches this powerful sermon, what should we do? Repent, believe, be baptized. The response of the evangelist. Or what about the response of the shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to tell what he does in the context of people getting lost. He says, I leave the 99 on the hills, and I go look for the one that was lost. Go until I find that one and bring that one home close to my heart and, by implication, close to the heart of God. The response of shepherd. Or finally, the last one I'll mention is the one on which I want to focus. Light. Light. Jesus came saying, I am the light of the world. He also said to his followers, let your light so shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you're here to shine a light on the character of God because what you do is to bring glory to him, not to you, not to me. And so the light is intended to say, this is who God is and this is how God works. That's a way believers have responded. That's a way Jesus left for us to follow. So if that's the case, if that's the one on which we're going to focus, the question becomes, then what exactly is God like? How exactly would God respond to a polarized culture? What does, do, what does God do with people who are polarized from himself? So I want to go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Now, I want to put up four words on the board before we read it because I want you to be especially attentive to these words as we read the passage. And let me just give you a warning. Paul doesn't pull punches. When Paul writes, he writes with full vigor. He writes with full passion, communicating to the people of his day the reality of the circumstances in which they find themselves. In fact, he was so powerful at his writing that it caused some to say, he, he, when he shows up, there's not much to look at, a little bow-legged man with bad eyesight. But let me tell you, when you read his letters, ooh, those are tough. Well, that was Paul. We're going to read in Romans chapter 5 what Paul has to say about the issue we're discussing. But the four words to which I want you to pay attention. The first word that will appear in the passage that we're especially noting is the word powerless. Powerless, an important word. If any of you have ever been in or even visited a 12-step group, you know how central this concept is to getting any kind of help. We came to the conclusion that we were powerless over, and then you fill in the blank, alcohol, drugs, shopping, sex, food, gambling, whatever the case is, powerless. That's the first word notice. Second word to notice is the word ungodly. Ungodly, another pretty strong term. 
Third word we're more familiar with, but it's still a strong term. It's the term sinners. And the last is the strongest term of all. It's the term enemies. Enemies. Now, if you just looked at that list without reading anything in the context, you would say, mercy. Whoever Paul is describing is in deep, deep trouble. This is not the kind of person I want to hang around that can be described by these terms. The problem is, he's talking about us. So let's go to Romans 5. We begin reading in verse 6. Paul writes, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, first word, Christ died for the ungodly, second word, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, third word, Christ died for us. And now verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, last word, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved through his life? Think about what Paul has said. First of all, powerless. People who can't do anything about their condition, can't do anything about their situation, they are stuck. They're clearly alienated from God, can't do anything to fix it. Secondly, ungodly. I don't want anything to do with God. Nothing. My mind in my life is oriented in a whole different direction. Don't want anything with that. Third word, sinners. Understand that in Paul's thought, sin is not first and foremost or primarily an action. It is a condition, a power. It's a fractured friendship, a ruptured relationship with God. It's a condition of being separate from God. Yes, it does lead to actions, but those aren't the first and foremost problem. In fact, they're not really the problem at all except how they hurt you and others because they are simply indicating what the true condition is, and that is one of separateness from God. And then finally, enemies. Could he find a stronger word? Saying these people are absolute enemies of God. So what you have here is this list of these people over here, and on the other side, you have God, and between the two, there is a great gulf fixed that the people over here can do nothing to bridge. They are totally separate, or another way to say it would be they are totally polarized. God is way over here, These people are way over here, polarized. So, what does God do? Because if we can answer that question, we take a very big step toward answering the question, what do I, as a Christ follower, as the disciple of Jesus do in the polarized realities of my world. Three lines, back to the same verses. Notice again, verse 6, you see, by the way, by the way, let me ask you to pay especially close attention to this word, while. 
Now, one or two instances, it appears as when, but it has the same meaning, while or when. That's very important to the understanding of what God does. You see, verse 6, just at the right time, when we were, while we were, still powerless. We're powerless. Can't do anything. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're polarized from God. Want nothing to do with him. What happens? God pours all of heaven out on us. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While, same word, same stuff is happening, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still in this condition, Jesus staggers up Calvary under the burden of the cross. Third time, verse 10. For if while, again, same condition, for if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. Notice what Paul is saying. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled. That's the answer to a polarized world. Polarized people are reconciled. And so what Paul is saying, through no action of our own, when we were polarized from God, God reconciled us to himself. It just brings me to tears to think of the fact that when I had no interest, when I was pushing him out of my life, even quietly, God was still at work to bridge the gap, to reconcile the polarization, to bring me, to bring you back to his heart. So what does God do in a polarized world? God spares no effort, no effort in heaven, to bring about reconciliation with people that don't even want it because they're his enemies. There's a word for that. And the word for that is hospitality. Hospitality. Now, maybe that's a new word to think about in this context. It was for me until maybe a year ago. Hospitality. Now, when we think of hospitality, we think maybe first of all of the hospitality industry. You know, hotels and restaurants and event planning and all these kind of expensive things. I mean, I'm not knocking it. I enjoy Anita and I always enjoy going down to Motel 6 and hanging out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the hospitality industry is wonderful. I'm not knocking it, but that's not what Scripture talks about. The second thing we think when we hear the word hospitality, I think of out of especially my teenage years. I can still remember the home where we lived, the church where Dad pastored, and I can remember going to church. It was much smaller than this, but I can remember Mom and Dad, both of them, just watching, looking around all the faces and spotting the ones who were new or who were visiting and going immediately to them, come to our house for lunch. 
And I can remember going home, and it was my job to try to find places for all these people to sit, set up the TV tables, bring more chairs to the table, and pretty soon the aromas were wafting through the house, and then we were sitting down and serving ourselves. There was laughter. There was joy. There was connection. There was friendship. I met someone just three weeks ago, four weeks ago, out greeting in the front from those times, and I looked at this person, maybe here today, and I said, John remembered him from those times of hospitality. As wonderful as that is, even that is much too limiting for the Scripture view, the Scripture understanding of hospitality, Christian hospitality. So there's a name. The name is Scott Cormode, who has over months now, last several years, has become through his, through his pen, through his writing, through his voice, and even through personal conversations of ours. He's become somewhat of a friend and a mentor to a number of us. Uh, his book, The Innovative Church, well worth the time, not the easiest read, but deep and meaningful. Scott talks about Christian hospitality. I want to read you what he has to say first of all. He's in a section where he's talking about some of the lies we tell ourselves about hospitality. So listen to this one. He writes, the first big lie is that hospitality is about food. Many Christians would limit their understanding of hospitality to helping with a potluck dinner at the church or perhaps to inviting someone to dinner at their home. This lie takes the wide and deep idea that hospitality represents in Scripture and narrows it so that it is an exercise in domesticity. When Jesus ate with sinners, it was not the eating that offended the Pharisees. The dinner table was simply the location. Now listen to this next sentence. He writes, They were offended because Jesus treated as insiders some people whom the Pharisees saw as outsiders. He's treating as insiders people that they say are outside. Who let them in here? How did they get in? And look how he's treating them. What? That's scandalous. Do you know that in every one of these and many others like these, there are cliques and clubs and groups that have their own insiders where we are the insiders and we're doing all we can to keep the outsiders outside and keep the insiders who we are. Now, is that appropriate in some places in life? You'll have to decide. It's far less damaging in certain circumstances. I mean, I belong to an insider group called... Sadly, Dallas Cowboys fans. <laughs> so there are all kinds of groups. But, Scott says, the challenge with Christian hospitality is that it takes the outsider and treats them like an insider. A couple pages later, listen to this quote. Actually, let me go back to the one before. Uh, this is just a one-sentence quote. He says, When I provide hospitality, my goal is to welcome the stranger so that I treat the outsider like an insider, just like God has treated me. I do it not because I'm virtuous. You do it not because you have a great personality, which you no doubt do. We do it because that's how God treated us. That's the bottom line. Theologian and scholar, scholar Miller Slav Wolf from Yale 
says God created a beautiful planet and then invited us into it. It was his planet. It was his home. I mean, don't we believe what we sing when we stand and we sing, this is my father's world? Is it really my father's world? I think so. And yet he has invited us into it, has given, us, given it to us, and we have done our best to destroy it because he's hospitable, treating us as insiders. The last quote, this one in the book is in all italics. Hospitality is the offer to extend the privileges of community to those who do not have the standing to expect it, especially those who are vulnerable because they are strangers. That's Christian hospitality. It is saying you are welcome here. You are going to be treated just like we treat one another. It will stretch us. It will challenge us. It will drive us to Scripture. But that's what God did with us. That's how he treated us when we were absolutely undeserving, uninterested, and his enemies. He poured all of heaven out on us and said, come in, sit at the table. I'll, I'll put out the fine china, the best tablecloth. You just wait till you taste the food, and I myself will serve you. That's what he said to us, his enemies. Hospitality, Christian hospitality, is treating outsiders like insiders. Now, I can almost hear it. It's an understandable question, a question I myself have had. And that's the question, but what if? What if in that context somebody's doing something, living some way, making some choices with which I don't agree and which, with which I may have some reason not to agree? When you sit down on the pew and you greet the person beside you, you notice something's a little strange with their eyes, and then you can get the whiff, the alcohol, smoke. What do you do? We don't do that here. Really? So because theirs stinks and smells and yours doesn't, you're going to tell them? Let's be careful. I, it makes me think of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, who I'm going to adapt his quote just a bit. But Billy Graham, who may have preached the gospel of Jesus to more humans on this planet than any other human in history. Billy Graham, that Billy Graham. Billy Graham says it's said it's God's job to judge. Scripture tells us that with clarity, God is the judge. So when something is happening with which we don't agree and is wrong, we join the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, crying out, How long, O Lord, how long till you act? Or we join the psalmist who repeatedly said, God, don't just sit silent when this is happening in the land. Act on our behalf. But it's his job. Secondly, it's Jesus' job to save. He saves, not me and not you. In fact, the best-known text in all of Scripture, that magnificent text, is so large that a shadow is cast over the text that immediately follows it, and we don't notice it. That text, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What a magnificent truth. That's what's happening here. 
But do you remember the passage that immediately follows it? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. That's Jesus' job. And then the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. To convict. When somebody needs convicting of something that is not in accordance with God's design and desire for their life, Scripture, I've read this book many times. I have yet to come to the passage that says, and Randy Roberts will convict you. It's just not there. But you know what? Neither is your name. But what is there is the Holy Spirit will convict. And so then we end up saying, wait a second. If God is judging, Jesus is saving, the Spirit's convicting, then what am I supposed to do? Glad you asked. Because Scripture is abundantly clear. It is our job to love. To love. And I'm not talking about cotton candy and fluffy clouds. We're talking about the kind of love that leads you to places called Calvary. Fully self-giving in the interest of the other who may have no interest in what you're offering at this moment in time, and yet you still love. For some inexplicable reason, I, inexplicable, Jesus has chosen that the main way he will show his love in the world today through you and through me. That, through his body. He has staked his name on how well we love. Now, if that doesn't scare you and drive you to your knees, I don't know what will. I mean, I've said it before, but that's what Dor Dorothy Sayers says. God has three great humiliations, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the church. And yet that's how God has chosen to put his arms around the world today is through us. That's our job in a polarized world because he did it for us. Now we do it for them. We treat outsiders like insiders. So I want to challenge you to do something. Don't do this unless you're serious. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to pray this week for one opportunity to treat an outsider like an insider. Not because you're trying to get them into church or this service or what. No, no, no. Just because that's what we are called to do and we are seeking to be faithful because he was faithful to us. Ask God, God, please, Give me an opportunity, and you're going to have to give me the power, the strength, the ability, because I don't have it on my own. So keep this awareness in mind for me, what you have done for me. But give me an opportunity to do for someone else what you have done for me. It may be that colleague at work with whose politics you profoundly disagree. You've argued about it. You've fought about it. You've been so mad you wouldn't talk for a week about it. Unfriended them on Facebook or whatever method you use. This week, zip it. And just say, God, please. In a polarized world, 
Let me live like Jesus, whose ethical core was never questioned, and yet who continually was accused of just loving anybody. Let me be like Jesus. Or to that atheist that I live next door to who likes to poke fun at me. You headed to church. You still believe in that genie up in the sky? <laughs> Have a good time. I'll be watching the game. Jesus, please, let me respond in the way you would respond. That gay classmate, you've struggled, been all over the Internet, books, Scripture, trying to figure out how do I relate to this person as faithful to Jesus. This week, choose to love them and to keep your mouth shut. Not love them because you're trying to do something other, other than just love them. It's what the, the, the one job he's given us. Let us not fail at that job. Whoever it might be on this or any other list you make, Make the choice. God, you have done this for me. Now help me do this for them. Treat outsiders like insiders. So some of you have heard me tell the story. I'm going to tell it again because I couldn't get it out of my mind. As a response to this kind of a polarized world, John Ortberg tells the story of going down to USC to sit in the class on philosophy taught by the late Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard for many years was professor of philosophy at USC. He was highly regarded, highly respected, well-written, a deep disciple of Jesus. So Ortberg sat in the class and observed, took in what he heard, and, and was again amazed by Willard's knowledge, his wisdom. And then at the end of the class, one of the students spoke up and, and, and just eviscerated Willard, said some things that were horribly disrespectful, but also said some things that were just simply wrong. So Orberg said, I sat there waiting for Willard as soon as the student would stop to respond to set him straight. That's wrong. Furthermore, that's not the way we talk to one another in public. He said the student finally finished. The class was kind of quiet, waiting to see what Willard would say. And Willard said, well, I think that's probably a good place to end today. So we'll see you next time. And Hortberg said, I thought, what in the world? Couldn't wait till all the students got out of the class. And he went up and spoke to Willard and said, what happened there? He was so disrespectful, and he was wrong. What, what happened? And Willard said to him, I am led right now in my life I think by the Spirit of Jesus, to practice the discipline of not having the last word. Do you know what that would do in a polarized world? To practice the discipline of not having to have the last word. What would that do in your marriage, your parenting? your work, school, relationships? What would that do with all the other ways that polarize us? What would happen if we did for others what God did for us? Treat the outsiders 
like insiders. Practice Christian hospitality following the steps of Jesus. Gracious God, that's a call that I can't even fully take in. So many other questions, legitimate questions. But Lord, let us not turn to those until we have allowed you to love through us the way you loved toward us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.